my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those, num those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society, just as numbers collected at the hospital do not show you that people are sick because they're in the hospital. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're tuning in to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone, and this is combo number nine with Peter Meyerhoff, a.k.a. Chappie. Now, this episode is a bit different than the others. I bumped into Peter who is the host of the podcast Roll Call with Chappie. Chappie is his nickname. We will definitely get into that. Um, but, you know, I met Peter at Turning Point USA um, at the convention in Phoenix. We clicked immediately, and he chatted with me briefly about his episode. Um, I was a teenage felon on Vice TV, and it absolutely blew my mind. Um, he has an incredible an amazing story, a lot of ups, a lot of downs to say the least, and then ends with a lot of ups again. And so I wanted to really jump into it. I felt like it's a very insightful and deep episode. Um, and uh, we definitely get into, you know, how he ended up the way he did from a kid who had the world in his palm, so to speak, and how it changed quickly from drug abuse um, reckless criminal activity, uh, lifestyle, and it led to him facing 12 years in state prison. And so I wanted to talk about a little bit of his upbringing today, his family, the events that specifically led to the sentencing. Um, again, how he got the nickname Chappie when he was in prison. Um, we go into a little bit about what, what it was like inside of prison um, things that positively worked out for him, but also his struggles. And then, of course, his struggles when he got out of prison, his abuse with alcohol and nearly dying from a drug overdose. And after that, you know, that moment changed his life, committed to staying sober. Um, he became a multimillionaire within five years after getting out of prison, you know, just a really big turnaround. But he ends up dropping it. Um, and that career to chase even deeper and meaningful ambitions like his podcasts, his clothing line and application Sober Life to help people in recovery with sobriety. Um, and then he is looking to take his own curriculum to jails and prisons to help these inmates kind of find the same path to success that he found. And I'm sure I'm sure this is a much, much needed individual in this scene and in this environment to help these individuals once they get back into the real world, especially with all the darkness, which there was plenty of that in his story. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, we will definitely briefly talk about some politics here and there and at the end. Uh, but overall, I just really like the change of pace today, and I hope you did too. So please enjoy. Here is combo number nine with Peter Meyerhoff, aka Chappie. Peter Meyerhoff, welcome to the Unveiled Patriot, brother. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, appreciate you giving your time to me today. Um, I brought you on. We met at uh, Turning Point USA and uh, yeah, just connected and, you know, did a quick bond there. And I just thought to myself, man, this guy has a insane story and an insane upbringing all the way to where you are now. And just some of the stuff that you told me um, that you are doing now and what you've been through is just really something that I felt like we can really engage with here on the podcast, touch base on, you know, first off, just kind of introduce yourself briefly. And, um, and then, yeah, I really want you to kind of get into the beginnings of your upbringing, you know, just a little bit of that and we'll go from there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, my name is Peter Meyerhoff. Nickname is Chappie. I am actually just turned 37 years old, uh, last week and I, um, I'll give you a little brief run. Thank you. Yeah, I'll give you a brief rundown. You know, I had a 
I had it all as a kid. You know, I was a, I had a modeling agent when I was like 13. I was in a movie as a kid. I was the best athlete, you know, the most popular kid. Um, you were in a movie. Yeah. I was in actually with Hideo Nomo when he just came over to the, to America to play. And it was actually a baseball movie. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was a kid that was actually, it's funny. I was a kid that was mad that he was coming over to America to play baseball. And I had never heard his name before. And, uh, yeah, so I had it all. I mean, childhood, childhood was very good, you know? And, um, when I got into drugs really bad in high school, um, I threw all the athletics away, modeling, everything. I threw everything away for drugs and ended up getting wrapped up with a really, really bad crowd of dudes and ended up instead of graduating high school, I went away to prison, um, spring break, my senior high school and, uh, got sentenced to a 12 year sentence in the department of corrections and served almost 12 years straight. And I was, so I was in prison from the year, uh, from 18 years old, all the way until I was 30 years old. And I got out a month after I turned 30. That's quite a spring break. Um, yeah, that's a long so, spring break. So yeah, if most people, if they remember, I, vice has been around for a while, right? Um, yes. And so you had an episode on a specific show. I was a teenage felon. Yeah. And you can still find that on YouTube right now. And I yeah, watched it's on Vice's YouTube and it has reruns air every week or two. I get all the new follower requests and I can tell they play reruns and stuff. <laughs> so it's always on TV. That's interesting. What, what's your thoughts on just rewatching that? Or when was the last time you rewatched it? I watched, so it's funny, they don't, when you do that Vice show, they don't tell you anything, you know, like I barely found out the week that my episode was going to be released, like a few weeks before then, and you don't, they don't send you a final clip or anything, and so we, I watched it with my family all together, like with popcorn and stuff, you know, in my house, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, because, what, they just slide the couch out the rug, sit down and talk about your life, and then they just, and they interviewed me, like I got interviewed for like six or seven hours straight that day, so like you're there all day, you don't even remember half the stuff you talked about, and then like each one of my family was like a whole day shooting. So then like they rented out this big um, building in downtown Phoenix. And then they shot me like on a Monday. I think they shot my brother on Tuesday. Then they shot my mom and my dad. And like every, every single person was like full day recording. So you have no idea what it is. And when we watched it, it was, it's crazy seeing yourself on like real TV, you know, but oh, I, got um, I was, I, you know, I was, I was honestly kind of upset about the first 45 minutes through that. Cause it's just all bad stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. granted I did all that stuff. I'm not proud of that stuff anymore. And like reliving that stuff and seeing the stuff in my high school right there. I was like, Oh my gosh, it was, it was kind of excruciating to watch. And, uh, it wasn't until the very end when they made up and put the positive side of it and what I'm doing now, I was like, I was like, all right, it was, it was all well worth it. It was cool. I mean, I want to get my message out there and help people. So it, it did that, you know, it definitely got uh, my message out there a lot more. They have a, yeah, I mean, I, a huge following. yeah, I was, I was definitely touched most multiple times and there was definitely some humor in that too. I felt, um, <laughs> that they plugged into there, but I can only imagine looking through your lens and basically you're essentially just reliving all that oh, crap. Yeah, for sure. But, and you know, it's, it's funny. Like I relate to some extent. I mean, obviously I've, the farthest or closest I've ever been in a cell is just a fucking drunk tank. Keep it um, that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've, even those nights, like I remember you made a reference where you first initially got locked up for like 30, no, 24 hours. And you said, Oh, I can handle this. And it kind of propelled you to keep doing stuff when you got back out. Okay. Um, uh, for me, it was a complete opposite. I was in the drunk tank for a whole night and it was like one of the worst experiences ever just with the cop in general. Um, uh, my boy, he had drugs on him. And ever since then, I just kind of, I was like, all right, I'm gonna do my absolute best to never go back there. And uh, I think a lot of young people um, can really, really learn a lot about you. But uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your family, uh, just a bit more specific. I really feel like we have, I feel like we have a lot in common from our childhood because like, you know, I'm an only child, but my cousins were kind of like my big brother. I feel like the little brother side of that. But then I also had a a younger cousin who was like a little sister to me. And, you know, we did a lot of things. We played sports. And once I got into school, all I gave a shit about was the social life. I threw the parties, I played ball. And then once I suffered an injury and that went to a backseat, I had a rough period in my life. Same, yeah. You know, no, not nearly quite like yours, obviously. But, you know, just talk a little bit about, you know, specifically your dad touched me the most and that dude clearly loves you unconditionally but you know you said you had everything what was it 
like that kind of steered you um, in that direction and, and a, at a young point in your time? What was like, if you could really look back hindsight and how did your parents play a role in that? Yeah. So, I mean, I had the, the one really bad instance, which is what really changed my childhood. You know, I chose to um, vice, they kind of went back and forth on airing that, that part of it. And then they, the, the directors all and producers chose not to air it, you know, and I, but I said, I was going to finally be open about it. Cause I think feel like it happens more often than not. People don't talk about it. Cause there's this bad stigma towards it. But I had a, so my mom was a flight attendant and that's how I got in with all the older kids. You know, she was a, my parents divorced when I was 10 and my mom was a flight attendant. So she was out of town five nights a week growing up, you know? So my house was the party house. Like I said, I was the athlete. I had the, you could come to my house on the weekends. There was no parents there. So it's, but we all drank and did the normal stuff that we do as kids. And, um, we weren't even driving at the time. I was 15 years old. And, um, I had my, one of my old friends, Brandon Nelson, who's actually, the person I went to prison for burglarizing his house and it comes full circle because he was the, the most popular kid, you know, his parents were filthy, filthy rich, you know, brand new Escalades, M3, whatever car they want when they're kids. Oh, so that was and, your, that was your homie. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember my you. best friend at first. Okay. So I don't remember hearing that specifically in the episode, but was that actually their house too? When they showed like videos and stuff? That was actually their house. Yeah. Okay. 12,000 square feet, full indoor basketball court with their last name on the half court. It was oh, like that. Shit. And yeah. So, so like, like your pad now. No. <laughs> yeah. Almost. I'm getting there. I'm getting there, bro. Um, but so yeah. that's what happened. And we, we had her, there was two chicks. I mean, Lindsay and Ashley that were popular girls and that's what we were doing. You know, we would do that. They'd sneak out from the parents' houses and her older brother would drop them off. And he'd supply the alcohol and he'd bring him over to my mom's house. Me and Brandon would stay there and we'd do that. So we did that and hooked up Friday night. And then Saturday night did the exact same thing. To this day, I don't know if I, I feel like she she was drunk and came back and it was the first thing that came to her mind. And I feel like it turned into something so big and she didn't want to make herself seem like a liar or something. But she said I had sex while she was sleeping. And okay. all my friends instantly turned against me. Even my best friend, Brandon Nelson, who was there and knew what we were doing, like they came over to hook up with us. And because that was my thing with him, all he had to do is just say what happened and it gets shut down, you know, but nobody would stand up for me, you know, and when you're kids, kids are easily impressionable, you know, and no one wants to fight the grain and go against the grain, you know, and if everybody's saying this happened, then they're all going to jump on the bandwagon. So that was what propelled me to, so I instantly had to drop out of school, so I couldn't even go to school anymore. So I dropped out of school and started hanging out with the kids that aren't in school uh, okay, and instantly okay. overnight go from being like a, like a teen celebrity to being like public enemy number one and start hanging out with dudes that aren't in school and steal cars and do drugs. And I experimented with a bunch of drugs my first week and I never even seen those drugs before, you know, but I didn't really have too much to behave for at that point. So that was what really went, took me downhill, you know, and took my parents along for the ride. And I mean, I have the most, I mean, my, I'm, a, I'm very honest about this. My dad is a hard ass and he's a dick, but he loves me. And I have the most amazing parents ever to you know to put up with all the shit that I put them through and after that you know I was nobody could say anything to me I didn't listen to nobody you know and they knew I was headed towards prison like when I finally got locked up my family was happy they're like at least you're going to be safe in prison you know yeah that's how bad it got yeah that's crazy and so I, I I don't remember that specific story in that episode so that's good I, that's exactly what I wanted to see I wanted to see what was your you got the uncut version because Vice wouldn't air that part Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's a good, that was the point where everything kind of turned and you just resorted connecting with people that weren't in the right, um, you know, place in life. And then you just kind of followed suit, right? Yep. And they weren't in school, so they didn't hear the bullshit rumors that were going around and they didn't know anything about me other than I was just down crazy kid and I was down to try whatever drugs they wanted. And I wanted anything to numb my pain and not feel what I was feeling as a kid, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that you had like a sports injury too, and that kind of tipped you leaning towards yeah. pills and stuff like that. And so you, you want to go into that a little 100%, bit? Yeah, I had a couple of knee surgeries. We talked about that too. I had a couple of knee surgeries and then start experimenting with pills, you know, and then once once that thing starts, I mean, they, you know, they prescribe those things like they're candy nowadays, you know, and that's uh, why I chose to be very open about that too. Because I mean, kids do Percocets, they don't even know what the hell they are. I mean, it's, it's heroin. Yeah, know? yeah. And it, people don't even know that it's pretty insane. Um, and, yeah. and especially now, and it must've been a coincidence or some type of alignment in the universe. Like when you sent me all those episodes, I went in downtown Scottsdale 
and there was like a dare uh, table set up and literally just trying to, hey, asking for donations about fentanyl and all this stuff. And it's like a real thing. And I swear, I train a client who's just in a box in fucking California. He's just locked indoors. And so he reads an article about fentanyl being the number one killer right now. And he asked me, he's like, Travis, do you think that's real? Or do you think it's like a fear tactics or whatever? And I'm like, fear tactics, but he's the one in the home, locked up, masked up. But for some reason, if you're like left winged, that opioid thing and fentanyl crisis, it's a fear tactic through them. It's crazy. Oh, they probably want to blame it on COVID. Yeah, for sure. It's crazy. And so yeah. that transitioned you into harder drugs. So I think it was crazy that you were going to this trailer park for the drug dealer and just trading him random shit that you stole. And got that's what it. we do every day. That that's was our literally that was entire our entire lives as kids. We'd go out selling drugs, doing whatever in the daytime, washing our cars, doing dumb shit, shoplifting all day, and then at nighttime. We'd go out just jacking all night. And then whenever we get done, then we'd go to our drug dealer's house on the south side of Phoenix and trade in whatever stuff we had. And that, I mean, that was what I did as a kid. That was my life. No parent parental supervision. I was running for my parents, you know, just driving stolen cars, just doing the worst shit possible, you know? Man, that's insane. And so what were the exact charges? I know that you had like a couple but then there was one that really hit you with that crazy sentencing. So if you want to go into maybe the main things, like I want you to tell the Mercedes story and then go into the heist and the actual sentencing that kind of. Yeah. So I got arrested for my, I had four felonies that I got convicted of. One was for cashing stolen checks. I mean, we were cashing just That's right. stolen checks that we'd steal from people going to checks, cashing place. And I'm in there cash another stolen check and, the doors lock and cops pull up out front. I was like, oh my gosh. And then of course I had a bunch of weed and back to my backpack and a gun. They take that. I get out on that. And then I got arrested for stealing the Mercedes Benz from the Mercedes Benz of Chandler. Back when the movie Gone in 60 Seconds they came out, they said those Mercedes were unstealable because they had the laser cut car keys. Being in the state of mind I was in, I was like, I'm going to go show them that they're not unstealable and I'm going to go steal one. <laughs> so that was the first night I found out what bolt cutters were. And literally I was like, get me these, let me, and I, no joke, my drug dealer had him, I was 18 and he showed me what they were and like cut a lock right in front of me. And I was just like, let me have these, let me get out of here. You know, I need to go jack shit now, you know? And we, I don't even know how we came across. We came across the Mercedes Benz dealership right there in Ahwatukee. And there was still, they still kept the lock boxes on the windows at night. And I, I mean, I literally walked the lot and picked which one I wanted. And then I cut the little, there's a little metal clasp that goes on the window. And I just snipped that like with scissors with the bolt cutters and cut that lockbox off. Took the lockbox down to um, the church by my school and slammed it on the ground like 10 times in a row as hard as I could. And the thing busts in half and then the Mercedes Benz key pops out. So then I have my buddy drop me off back there. And there's the big swinging fences that open up the dealership lots, you know. So I have to go cut that with a chain. And I was so small and sucked it up then. Like I couldn't even cut that big ass chain i had to brace the big bowl cutter on the ground and just push in so i popped that chain got the whole gate off and i drove off in a brand new mercedes benz uh, i think it was an eighty-five thousand dollar car and saw the plastic on the seats and i had that thing about two and a half hours yep and then you did the most rational thing when showcased yeah. at your high school <laughs> yeah what other what else would you do i had to go show off in high school that i had that i wasn't in school anymore and i had a mercedes benz i mean i, I couldn't tell why one of the windows was broken though it's pretty fucking hilarious but it is true the realest thing is like once you are on those drugs correct me if i'm wrong you are a completely different person 100 percent. and you don't you don't even have rational thoughts like i thought that was normal like literally you know like my my thoughts for the day was how i was gonna get the windows tinted and find rims for the car like that was my thought like i didn't even think about the fact that there was low jack on it that they could find the car it was stolen there's no license plate on it like it's yeah it, and you so, can just... and then my final charge was um 10 of us kids decided to go burglarize a house in uh Ahwatukee during spring break with what should have been my senior high school and it was actually my old best friend that didn't stand up for me that night. And so we go burglarize his house. We didn't have to break it. We knew how to get into the back door. And a bunch of us kids all took a few hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff out of his house. And I thought I was a badass. So, of course, I'm not going to say anything to the police. Everybody else told them. And they kind of made it like I was like the ringleader of this thing. 
And they threw the book at me, man, and gave me a 12-year prison sentence for a non-dangerous theft of control property charge. Fuck. And I can only imagine, because this was kind of a blindside, right? You were expecting like a four-and-a-half-year sentence? Yeah. My lawyer said I could get six, but he's like, he almost guaranteed me I wouldn't get six. And I remember literally going into my sentencing, I was telling him, you got to make sure I can't get no freaking six years in prison. I like literally cannot do six years in prison. And they just doubled it. Went around and almost tripled it. And I remember the judge's words like it was yesterday. He said, I find it mitigated for he found mitigated circumstances because the fact I was 18 years old and I was on drugs. And then his next sentence was, I also find it aggravated for the amount of the jewelry that you guys have stolen. And I, he said, I think he goes, I think this calls for an aggravated sentence of 12 years. And all I remember thinking is you think like, how can you not be sure? You know, like. That's kind of crazy. That's a, I mean, granted, uh, you know, getting sentenced, I guess that's where you're at in life. But don't you, did you think that was like excessive? Oh, far beyond excessive. Mm -hmm. Cause that's what sucks too, is when you're doing, you know, four or five years, like I would have been doing, you just go to a minimum yard, you know, where it's an open yard, you get to work in city. Like those, those yards aren't even like that bad. You know, when you're, but when you get sentenced for 12 years and you go to the yards of the big boys, you know, and I was, I didn't look like this back then. I was six foot, 144 pounds, long blonde hair from Awatuki. And the dudes in prison call it all white Tuki. And they don't like people from Awatuki. Interesting. Luckily, I used to box though. Right, right. And so uh, what was going through your head? So you could explain. I don't mind at all. I am actually very curious. Uh, explain those yards one more time, uh, just a bit more yeah. clear. And then give me what was going on in your head when you were pulling up and what was running through your mind. Like, yeah, so I'll tell you. So am, the, I gonna, the, am I going to get bent over as soon as I walk in there? <laughs> uh, like the, so the prison yards are you have, you have one yards, which are like your final year or two. They're like work camp yards. Like a lot of them, there's not even fences around the yards. Like you could escape any day if you wanted to, but no one's leaving that yard. And then you have your minimum yards, which you have to have under five years left and like non-dangerous crimes. And minimum camps, that's where it's at. You know, that's when you can, they can still work in city. You have open yard all day long. The yard's open from like five in the morning until 10 at night. And, and then they have three yards, which are medium security. And that's as low as lifers can go. But you have lifers on three yards and it's still, it's not an open yard, but it's not cell living. So you get one rec period a, uh, a day, whether, excuse me, whether it's morning, afternoon, and night. And then you start going up to the four yards and that's where, all the violence and the real bad dudes are because four yards are they're I mean, 23 hour day lockdown. You only get three rec days a week, three showers a week. And other than that, you're in your cell, but you still have guys that when you hit the yard, that's when all the stabbings murders and the bad stuff happens on four yards. Cause then on top of that, you have maximum security and super max, which I've been to all of them. I got out from max. And I mean, there it's, you're around straight psychopathic murderers. Like, I'm serious. Like there's dudes in there that don't even think of like a life, like it's a life, like it's a fly. Like they don't even bat an eye at it, you know, but you're, you're slamming yourself 24 hour day lockdown. You never get out without shackles. So there's not as much violence in there because you're segregated from everybody. You just never, you never touch another inmate. Like I was in a five by seven cell 24 hour day lockdown. I mean, think how small five by seven is. It's your bed and your toilet. And that's about it. You can't even do a push up next to your bed. Did you have a, like a buddy in there with you or oh, and those, those are single cells with the oldest they're built in 1939. It's uh have you seen the movie stir crazy ever stir crazy? No, it's filmed in their century in Florence from back in the like seventies huh. eighties though. Okay. Yeah. In the late seventies, the century where I was at, that was the most dangerous prison in the country. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. That's crazy. So yeah. What were you, what was going through your head? When you first arrived, well, I'll tell you when I was going oh, through the yard because you have no idea what to expect. You know, like the whole raping stuff. Like that's like a it, it's it happens in certain states. It doesn't happen in Arizona because um, they keep all the sections on separate yards. Um, but I remember pulling up. We went to Tucson Complex, and Tucson's a big complex. There's seven yards there, and I remember pulling up in the bus, and I see just it seems like everybody's out there just like playing basketball or playing softball. And I remember like thinking like, what a relief. I was like, all right, at least I can do that. You know, I'll just play sports for 12 years is what I was thinking. And then they, and then they keep just letting people off on certain yards. And then they go to the back and there's like, I think three or four of us left only. And we go to the last two yards and this is where we're going. And there's like, there's no one on the yard. It's, you can tell it's locked down. And I'm like, oh my God. Of course, like Meyerhoff. And I was like, I remember thinking, of course, I'd be getting off on this yard, you know? And I remember walking to Chow that first time that day. Because what's 
tough is a lot of what a lot of people don't realize you know is like you go from when you go from like where i was like the most popular cool kid like you do anything in the world you want like i thought i was going to have my pick at what sport i wanted to go pro at or what you know what i wanted to do and i thought the rest of my life was going to be like that and then you go from you go in there and you're like not only just like you feel like a lame because no one knows you but like you just feel like you're invincible like nobody can even see you like nobody even knows me and i remember thinking like oh my God, this is going to be a lonely ass 12 years. You know what I mean? Like, how am I going to do this? You know? And then they give you the whole rundowns about like sucker punches. And that's what they tell you right when you hit the yard. Like, you know why they call it a sucker punch? Uh, you explained in the vice, but you're a sucker if you get punched, right? Yeah. Cause you're the sucker if you get punched. Like, so if you even think you're going to get into it, someone you take off on a blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, oh my God, dude, this is no joke. You know what I mean? And I'm like, and like, I'm I probably weighed 160 pounds at that time. And like I said, luckily I used to box. So, so the few fights I got in that first, I whooped a couple of dudes. I ended up the first fight I got in, in prison. I was beat. I actually beat up the dude that was running my building. Just, he was trying to punk me, you know? And I was just like, I thought they thought I was like some little pretty boy, you know, and I couldn't fight. So I just well, made an example. And I, thank yeah. you. Thank your uncle. And then thank your chapstick. So <laughs> said, yeah. explain, explain why chappy. And then uh, you are, referring to shot collar so go into chappy what's up with that yeah they, well one is i don't mind chapstick. chapstick right there in hand <laughs> Get yep, i wear it all day long and it started from my uncle so my uncle was a pro boxer and he's the one that got me into boxing like i said luckily i think i saved my life with the whole prison thing and definitely the only reason i end up being with shot was because i was so tough you know and he taught me when i was younger and i because during this time i had old seniors that were trying to jump me you know i was a little scrawny freshman you know I, I probably weighed 120 pounds who knows and he said if you hold something hard in your hand and you hit somebody with it like this in your fist you're, you're like twice as likely to knock them out and if you don't notice you can even do a chapstick or a light he used a rock or a lighter as an example mm -hmm. you don't get nothing like that but you get chapstick in prison so you carry this and you just put that in your fist i mean your fist is a literal brick as opposed to it being regular so that's how I got the name Chappie. And then the nickname Chappie stuck with me all the way through prison. And then my podcast is called Roll Call with Chappie. And I I hated the name at first, but now that is uh, as what I go by here is Chappie. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, with the, the shock collar thing, you mentioned that there's certain tables in the cafeteria. And so yeah. be, because of so you were going in terrified. I mean, solitary is like the worst thing you can do to a human being. And so you still especially were, a kid, you know, yeah, especially a kid and someone who's scrawny, terrified shit, 12 years, um, something in you told you, I got to kind of prove myself or somewhat, or it's going to be bad along 12 years to say the least. So when you got to those tables where there's shot collars, right. Explain briefly that little hierarchy that's in there. I'm just kind of fascinated with that. Yeah, no, people are, I get it. So it's, I mean, it's just like, you'd probably imagine from the movies, you know, you go in there, they say there's there's three rows of tables, you know, you have the first set of tables and that's where the, all the lames sit, they call them, like just the regular inmates that aren't in the politics and aren't putting in work or doing anything and they have no, st you're allowed to do that unless there's, the only, your only rule in prison as a white boy is like, if there's a riot that pops up or something, you have to be there and you have to be involved and back your people up, but you don't have to get into politics. If you want to be a teacher's aide and like a library bookworm, you're more than entitled to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. um i wasn't gonna spend my life like that you know and especially because i had so much time so then you have your first row which is all the regular lames they call them and then your second row of tables which is all the soldiers you know like all the torpedoes and me when i was younger and all the dudes that are like have their hand raised to put in work on people and the gangster dudes and then you have the very back table which is just the head table and that's where the bosses sit the shot callers you know and um yeah, it is a uh, beyond a like privilege to sit at that table in there. You know what I mean? I don't care. And here's the deal: there could be no because a lot of times there's no one even sitting at the head table. There's certain buildings that not one dude even sits at that table, and it doesn't matter if every other table is filled. And there's nowhere to sit. You don't ever sit don't at that sit at table. table. You literally stand with your tray and wait till you have a seat open. Yeah, because I found it interesting where they popped it up career opportunities and the vice. I was just like, that's pretty funny. But at the same <laughs> time, like since. I don't see myself ever being in prison. I've always, I was always curious how human nature with those hierarchies kind of really worked together and they had to work together in there. And so that was one of the kind of interesting things. But uh, so you started off as a soldier and just basically like, Hey, I'll volunteer to do, 
beat up this guy or do whatever, right? Just to get your name and your reputation. But over time, you became a shot caller. So explain that evolution. Yep. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, it yet starts as that. They, I mean, they ask you what you want to do when you come down. And if, if you're down to put in work and if you want to be clicked up with them or if you just want to be a lame, you know, and I was like, my words to him is definitely not going to be a lame. You know, I didn't even know I was going to get into politics. I didn't even know about politics back then, you know, mm-hmm. but I, and my response to him is I'm definitely not going to be a lame. And then, uh, but what that means there is that your hand's raised always, you know, cause you can't raise and say, Hey, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. Like your hand is raised, you know? So, um, it's just one thing about prison. I was like, people talk so much cause you have nothing better to do though. You know? So what worked out so well is like a few of the first fights I went in, like everybody was twice my size, you know, and I'm not joking. I didn't even get touched, you know, like I beat the shit out of some of these people. And what that does is like, instead, I remember the first fight I got in the next day I go out there on the yard and I was worried I was going to be in trouble for beating up the dude running my building. Cause I didn't know anything, you know, and instead like I go out there and now all these OGs are like, Hey, youngster, I heard what you did, you know, good to meet you. And I'm like, Oh shit. Now these guys all want to know my name, you know? And, Mm-hmm. So it was addicting for me. So anytime there was someone that needed to get whooped or, you know, I raised my hand, I, I, I wanted to do it. And then um, your status just stacks up a little bit, you know, and then come on comes with that comes ego, you know, and my size, I was finally growing a little bit, you know, because I grew till I was like 23 in there. So by the time I was 23, I was on a four yard and um, I remember they rolled up my buddy that was actually running the yard. And I remember thinking, I'm like, damn, who's going to run the yard now? You know, it's like, I feel like it could be me, you know? And I was like, it was me or this other guy, his name was, his nickname was Run Amok Chuck. And Chuck was just like an old scrawny OG dope fiend. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm not letting that to run the yard if I'm here, you know? And I kind of made up my mind that I was going to take the yard, you know? And I went over and told him, hey, so I was going to run the yard. And he's like, I was going to run the yard. And I'm like, well, I'm telling you right now, I'm fucking running the yard. Are we clear? And, um, that was it, man. I took that yard. And then after you do that and you run a yard and your name really gets known out there in the state, you know, and, uh, um, it's, it was, it's just all, it's all attention in the, all the worst ways, but it's what I strive for. You know, like all I wanted to do was be like some big gangster in prison. Cause I had the imposter syndrome, you know, I wasn't a convict. I wasn't like a gangbanger Like all these dudes, you know, all these dudes are like killers and mobile with guns out there. And I had never touched a gun in my life. You know what I mean? And, they couldn't even believe how much time I got. I, mean, I was in there with dudes that were doing manslaughter and some murder charges were doing 10 years in prison. You know, and I got 12 for a theft charge. Yeah, that's crazy. So I always had to overcompensate with that. And so, uh, yeah, you, you mentioned politics. What, what exactly do you mean by that in regards to like certain gangs? Prison and- politics. So, so like each race has their own rules. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. um, that's what I mean with like the prison politics and getting into politics now, which means you're directly involving yourself with the Aryan Brotherhood for the white boys or it's the Mexican mafia for the Mexicans. And, um, so yeah, prison politics just means you're doing like the politics stuff for the uh, Aryan Brotherhood. Okay. So is that like kind of the group that you ended up falling into? Did you really have a choice or no choice? Like, you're, No, your choice is them or nothing if you're a white boy, you know, because <laughs> oh, there's, no, there's not multiple gangs. Yeah. So like with the Mexicans, it's you ride with the Mexican mafia or you're going to be a lame, you know, and that's, those are your choices. Okay. Okay. It. Yeah, crazy. So how did that like, so you were ticking towards the end of your sentence. Um, this is where I really get interested in how you were preparing on leaving. Um, like the idea of, or not the idea, but the um, principle of institutionalized. Like, did you feel that was going to be something where you were afraid to be away from prison after that? Like, what was going through your 100%. Taking towards the yeah, end so when you got out. Uh, I'll be completely honest, man. I was I was a, just under a year to the gate, and and by this time, so I never even seen needles like drugs like heroin. I never even saw heroin. I never saw a person on heroin before. I never even seen anything that had to do with that before. But in prison, everybody does it, you know. And it's like, I mean, you can't not see it a single day in there, you know. So. I developed such a worse drug habit, you know, because I, I hated my life, you know, and I hated that God gave me 12 years in prison. I hated that I was surrounded by all these druggy losers. I thought, you know, and um, I was, I, I wasn't happy, you know, and I honestly didn't think I'd make it through the 12 years. So I pretty much got high most of the time and just under a year to the gate. And I was strung out, you know, back down to 170 pounds or something. And 
luckily I've said this would save my life, but the SSU, which was like, they're the, the detectives in there. Okay. So you have the regular corrections officers and then you have the SSU staff and the SSU staff are like, say the difference between the police force and the detectives, you know? So the SSU, they're the ones that are like doing the investigating, trying to get us booked on cell phones or weapons or all that type of stuff. So SSU finally rolled me up, which that means they like take you off the yard and they put me back in the hole again, which is solitary confinement. And I spent my last like nine months in solitary confinement and it saved my life. Because I went from being strung out to thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to go home in a year. And I'm like, I don't even know how to quit using. Like, I have zero life skills. I didn't do anything to program. Because even the programs they have, and there's not anything barely for programs. And the programs they do have, they're all on, like, the minimum yards, you know? They don't have programming for the dudes that are in four and five years because those dudes mostly aren't going home, you know? And if they are, they're going to come right back to prison, you know? And they know that. So, um it actually kind of gave me a little hope, you know? So my last nine months, I ended up putting on like another 70, 80 pounds in the hole and finally was able to like get some, a lot of alone time and actually think about, cause you know, you don't want to think about the street. So instead now, like my last nine months, I was like, okay, now I can finally like have a plan and prepare to get out. But to answer your question, I was terrified to get out. I always say this, all I wanted to do was get out of prison. But other than that, I was terrified to get out of prison. I was scared of, what I was going to do for a living. I was scared of how I was going to not use drugs. I was scared of how I was not going to beat up somebody if they said something stupid to me. I can't even tell you the fears that I had. And yeah, to answer your question, I was, I was full on scared to death to get out of prison. I was as excited as I was scared. Yeah. And that, and that really shows in that episode where you go to a circle K or whatever, and you struggle to buy a candy bar. So we, as human beings, once we start getting our freedoms taken away for so long we adapt accordingly and so since i can't relate to years in prison i can only imagine right when you say nine months of solitary confinement like that gets me in my bones i'm like oh shit i can never do that but yeah at the end of the day that is crazy too that there is a shitload of drugs in there and heroin i mean i figured they oh. figured out some way to do it there They're, i'm pretty sure they got to figure it out but um, your pops, like, he, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but he made the claim. He was just like, there's more drugs in prison than on the streets. Yeah. And uh, that's insane. That's just, and that was my mindset too, is I, I always thought that I was like, at least if I get out of prison, I don't have to see heroin and meth every day. You know what I mean? Like, cause I won't be hanging around people doing that stuff. You know, like it's even harder to stay sober in prison because like, you're literally around that shit 24 seven and you could be not wanting to get high. And if you're on a, a yard with a cell that shoots up, I mean, your cell is in your cell shooting dope right in front of you. And you got nothing you else to do. You can't do that. You know, it's his cell too. Yeah. You got nothing else to do. You can't say, Oh, I got work in the morning. Literally Sorry. nothing else to do. And so I, yeah, I, could, I could only imagine. And so, yeah. So, I mean, once you got out, um, the part that this part actually, like, obviously that, like, that isn't crazy enough once you got out of prison, but the part where they say like the elevator going down part and you with alcohol. Right. And so now yeah. you're blending this in, trying to adapt in society again. And say so you said you didn't remember at all. So you had an overdose experience, but you didn't remember at all, like what you did exactly. Yeah. And so I'll tell you that was my, and that was my thing too. Like I had gotten out and I was, I went in and I was so young. So like my, my, just to show you how dumb my mind is, like I was 30 years old. And my brother's like, keeps, keeps telling me, what are we going to do when you first get out? And like, all I want to do is go to the mall because like, I told, I remember is we used to go to the mall and steal shit. Now I'm like, I want to go walk on the mall and not steal stuff now and buy stuff, you know? <laughs> but that was like my mindset. So I'm 30 years old, this prison shot caller getting out. Like all I want to do is go to the mall and go shopping, you know? And I wanted to drink and party, you know, and go hook up with chicks and just do what normal kids get to do that I'd missed out on, you know? And, uh, the problem with me though, is like with alcohol, I'm not one of those closet drinkers. I don't drink by myself. Like I like to party and drink, but mm -hmm. when I drink, I don't have an off button and I'll say fuck it to anything pretty much when I do that. Um, and so, yeah, I had an, actually an overdose. I had, um, I was at a buddy's birthday party and we were, I remember we were drinking in the afternoon and we just, I remember the last thing was I did a, uh, Rumpelman shot. And I don't remember leaving the bar even somehow I had left the bar and went and got high and overdose. Next thing I remember is I'm strapped up in a ambulance on the way to the hospital. And I kind of come to it. I remember asking the paramedic, like, what the hell happened? I thought I got in a bar fight. And he's like, you overdose. And I remember telling him, I don't even use drugs anymore. And he's like, well, you did today. And I remember thinking, yeah. 
you've got to be kidding me. You know what I mean? Like what an idiot I am. Like, how did I go back to using? Like I deserved, and I, I remember at that time, I wish I would have just died. I was like, dude, I'm over, I'm over fighting this shit. You know, like I'm, I, I literally want to give up on life. And I was honestly mad that I was saved. And um, what's a, what's a very crazy story. And so kind of got me on my mission now. And I always thought that I was saved for like a bigger purpose, you know, because when my ex-girlfriend's sister found me, um, she went to go tanning and she got out of her car. She went up to the tanning bed salon. She said she even went as far as putting her hand on the tanning bed salon door. And she said the second she put her hand on the door to open it up, to go inside and go tanning, something told her to go home. And she said she took her hand off the door and got right back in the car and went home. When she went home, I was dead in the bathtub, no heartbeat, no anything, like full on blue. And she's the one that found me. So, I mean, if she walks in the tanning bed salon door, even for another second or two, I'm probably gone. I mean, like my heart wasn't even beating at that time. Luckily, they were able to get it beaten again. And by the time they had got me to the hospital, my heart was only beating six beats a minute. The doctor came in and said, I'm the only person to survive in the condition he's seeing. So I always had this in the back of my head that I was like, and I had a feeling I was like safe or something bigger. And I was like, why would I, you know, but I didn't, nothing really made sense to me with like religion or faith because I didn't understand why I would get so much time for that. I was like, what lesson is that teaching me? You know what I mean? Like to give me 12 years for a theft charge and I'm from Ahwatukee, you know what I mean? I shouldn't have been in prison with those guys, you know? Um, but it was all part of the plan though. So yeah, and that was July of 2016. And I've now been sober five and a half years. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so with the path to sobriety, this is a big thing for you. Um, I'm going to post that picture of you cheesing with the sober life shirt. That's a good yeah. picture. Um, yes. Because as much as we talk about all this dark stuff and what you were telling me, I don't know if you were telling me when we were recording or not, but what bothered you about that vice episode, it very like minimal of the positive that comes out yes. of it. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, no matter who you are in this life, we are all bound to some type of suffering and being yep. knocked down. And I think your story on how you got back up is pretty incredible. And uh, your family, man, mad props to them, um, all of them kind of sticking with you, because I can only imagine that call that you overdosed or on the verge, oh. six other people got similar symptoms passed but you pulled through again, another calling from God, all part of the plan. Right. And for the most part, like you had a good foundation there. And then now add the sober life to your life. Like how did that change? Go to the, your car dealership gig and just tell me a little bit about how you started progressing yourself. Where, um, you know, what are the successful tangents and branches that you hung off of? Yeah, for sure. So I, you know, cause I, I, I do, I was always in recovery stuff, you know, and I thought that like, I knew I needed to be sober. I knew I was an, an like having the addictive mind, you know what I mean? But I, but I wanted to party and stuff. And I felt like I was entitled to do that, you know, cause I lost all my twenties, you know, and, um, they always, you know, they'll share in like meetings or something like that. They're like, you know, drugs will kill you, you know? And I'm just like, yeah, but it's not going to kill me. You know what I mean? Like, look at all the shit I did. Like, there's no way I'm going to die. You know? And I feel like that was the one time that I was just like, Whoa, it's real. You know, I'm going to kill myself if I keep this up, you know? And um, I remember I was, because I was like coming in and out of consciousness. And the next thing I remember is like I was in the hospital and then I hear my brother in the hallway and he's on the phone with my dad. And all I want to do is not have my dad find out I just overdosed, you know? And I remember yelling, I said, Why would you tell dad? And he's like, You almost died right now. Do you know how serious this is? Blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, Oh my God, what is wrong with me? You know? And I remember thinking right then, I was just like, All right, it's now or never. You know, seriously, like either keep trying to play with fire because you think you're entitled to go drinking and drugging and you missed out on your 20s when it's granted. It, and here's I'm a full hearted believe this. Like, did I get in my sense to say it was excessive is not even a, is an under an understatement. You know, like I, I can't I still can't even describe how I got so much time for my prison sentence. But here's the deal, you know, if I don't commit that crime, I don't give them the chance to even give me that prison sentence, you know? So no matter what, it's all my fault, you know? And I, I, I just finally stopped playing the victim. And I was like, all right, I'm going to take this sobriety stuff seriously. And I went out to South Dakota to go stay with my dad. And then I finally had someone that was going to give me my first job. So I didn't have my first career job or anything until I was 31 years old. And one of my co-defendants, he was a finance director at a Kia dealership, Mark Key in Scottsdale. And his, cause he was 15 when this had happened. My little brother, number 15 and 16. So a lot of them just got 
probation and then they went to they got like a misdemeanor once they completed their probation so they didn't they didn't even have a felony on the record and uh he finally got an in with me to go talk to the general manager and they were going to possibly hire me to go sell cars and i always like talking to people i'm a personable people i like to talk so i went in there and just pretty much begged the general manager i was like yo i've never had a job in my life like i know you know my past like i did some dumb stuff as a kid you know i'm sober now this and that and um, I said, I'll kill it here. You know, I said, I, I said, I promise you I'll be your best salesperson you got. And, um, he hired me and I remember going to my first sales meeting. So I'm coming out there for like a maximum security prison cell, you know, and now I'm like wearing a, a tie to work. I didn't know how to tie a tie. And I remember going there, we had a, a sales meeting right away. And this, there was a chick actually, her name was Marcella. And she was just like a beast was just like really good with customers. And she was salesperson salesperson of the month that month and it sold like 24 cars, which ought to pay you over $10,000. And I literally right in that meeting, I called her out and I bet her hundred bucks. I said, I bet you hundred bucks. I sell more cars you next month. And she was just like, who are you? And I was just like, I'm going to be the best salesperson here next month. And we actually did bet that. And I ended up beating her by one car my first month. So I went from, you know, never having a job in my life to making, I made just over nine grand my first month selling cars then 10 to 12 grand a month. And then I went and I got promoted three times. So I went from, you know, stealing cars and stuff to within 13 months, I'm a finance manager at this big dealership and I have my own office. I'm one of like three people allowed to touch the safe there and I have a key to the damn dealership. And it's all because hustle, you know, like I, I sat in a prison cell all those years and I just like dreamed of getting a chance to hustle and like make a name for myself in the right way and do positive stuff. And, a lot of one thing that uh, th this just goes to perspective, too. So a lot of the citizens out here in the re regular public, you know, they feel they get pity parties, too, you know, and they feel like they got it bad or they don't one thing, little thing doesn't go their way. And they think that their day sucks and they kind of check out on their day. And I don't have that mentality. You know, I've, when you've when you've lost everything, you know, you can only go up from there. So I just switched addictions, you know, and I and I turned my drug addiction into a money addiction. And I lived at that car dealership and I started like I said, making 10 grand a month and a hundred grand a year and 200 grand a year and 300 grand a year. And then, you know, bought a couple of houses and have, you know, like have a home that like, you know, no one in my family's ever been to prison. I'm by far the only black sheep in my family. And there's nobody in my family that's had a house like I live in now, you know, and I've only been out of prison. This month is actually going to be uh, six years for me, February 26th. Oh, yeah. Man, congrats. Oh, Happy belated yeah, birthday. Yeah, thank you. And I was doing that. And it's all to talk about. It's all being part of the plan. You know, I was having my best year ever this year. I, I mean, I was going to probably make double what I made last year. And I was just like, I just became so not happy with the money anymore. You know, and I had all the toys I could have. You know, I have all the clothes I want. I like, there's only so much stuff you can buy, you know, and I kind of felt empty, to be honest. And uh, I, cause I still talk to a few dudes that are the only guys I talk to from prison are guys that are like in recovery and are helping people from prison now, you know? Mm -hmm. And I got just kind of, kind of, kind of jealous about all them, you know, like they were jealous of me cause the money I was making, but I was jealous of them that they were doing what they loved, you know, and helping people. And, um, like I said, something came over me, man. And I just, I, uh, decided to walk away from my job in June and, um, I wanted to pursue this yeah, um, dream of just help of helping people. And so I, you know, I called my general manager there in my office and it was like so weird. It was like two grown man. I'm just, I was crying. I mean, we talked for two hours, you know, and I told myself, I, I don't even know what to say other than I can't do this job anymore, man. I was like, uh, I think it's ran its course with me and I want to go do positive stuff and help people. And I said, I'm, I'm you know, I, the money's all good, but I'm, I'm willing to not make that money for a while and to, to live a life now, you know, cause even then when I, when I was free out there at first, I had, I had all the freedom before I was working in the car dealership, but I didn't have money to go do stuff. You know, I didn't have money to go do stuff on the weekends. You know, I had free time and I didn't have money to go do shit, you know? Mm -hmm. So this time I told myself, like, I want to just like chill and like go travel and, you know, and the car business can get exhausting. You work every weekend for the most part, you know, so you don't have too much free time, you know? And I was just telling this new youngster that I've been talking to that just got out of prison yesterday. I said, I said, just be blind to the fact that you're not going to have a life, live at the dealership, stack up a bunch of money. And then what you do on your days off, you go shopping and go shop and buy whatever the hell you want for yourself. And you don't even think about the money, you know, and that's how I used to bribe myself to work those hours, you know? And um, so, yeah, I decided to walk away from that just this last June. That's when I launched my podcast and my website. And I'm in the process of developing some pretty state of the art um, curriculum. That's going to be its own app called sober life with Chappie in the app store. And it's going to be in prisons and jails. Area too, so we can mentor these guys and, get them help when they're in there and then also maintain 
um, coverage with them when they get out through my app. That's great. That, that, that is phenomenal stuff. And I was going to say, it is quite symbolic how you shifted. You already said you changed your addiction, but I would say even more so, like you channeled your energy. You have a type of energy and you just kind of went on the wrong path, it seems like. That's what I talk about because I speak out of orientation on the dudes when they get out of prison, they hear from me these orientations, you know, and I got a big one I'm doing this Thursday too. And I tell them all that, you know, like if you put a quarter of the effort and you used to put in a running game on corrections officers or selling drugs, you put a quarter of that effort into something positive, you'll be blown away with how much positive you can do. Yeah. And you literally became the shot caller of a dealership, right? So you channeled your energy. And I think, yep. correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, those guys that come out, they need people like you. Or if you, if you go in there, they need to see some type of glimmer of light. Did uh, Chappie come and talk to you in your 12-year sentence? For sure. Absolutely. Because they don't have that, you know? And like, when I was talking to the dude yesterday and I was showing him like, I've shown him my website and then like kind of saw my car and all that stuff. And he's just like, and he messaged me when he got done at the gym. And he's like, thank you so much for showing me what's possible. He's like, I knew this was possible. And I'm just like, and that's what, and that's clearly like the whole, and you know, what's funny is when I quit the dealership, I didn't even believe in God. You know, I, I gave up on God in prison. I, I, there's no one in the world that could have convinced me he was real, which is why I kind of had a hard time with all the prison time I got, you know, and it's, but I firmly believe now that this is all part of the plan and, um, that's the thing that got me out of the car dealership and got to where like the money wasn't enough for me. And obviously it was to put this, my podcast out in front of me. And I think I'm finally serving a purpose that's bigger than myself. And it feels good to do positive stuff for once, you know? Yeah. You know, God forbid. And uh, since you're already on it, like, you know, talk about a little bit about, you know, what the name of your podcast is again. And then, you know, yeah. you know just give me a quick rundown. Like what exactly are you trying to get across? Who are you talking to? And just give, sure. my, give my small audience a better view of like what you're doing with the podcast. Um, and yeah, I think it's a pretty cool podcast myself. We can get into a specific episode after you go through your details. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, my podcast is called Roll Call with Chappie and it's C-H-A-P-P-Y. And it's a lot of it's recovery, but you don't even have to be in recovery. And you can get some from it. It's more than anything. It's just like overcoming mental obstacles people that have like the imposter lesser than syndrome or people that just struggle with, with strength mentally. That's one thing I noticed out here. There's dude, people are weak as hell out here. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, and I used to be that same way, you know, until you, like I said, until you lost all your freedom and you have to bet on yourself and you have to figure stuff out, you know, it makes you mentally strong, you know? And um, I brainwashed myself to be mentally strong. You know, I've rewired my brain. I always say this three complete different times and the complete opposite ends of the spectrum that they were on before, you know? So it's, it's just to, my pocket is to show people that anything's possible uh, as long as you believe in yourself. And I have people that are on there that overcome some crazy, crazy stories. I even threw Sheriff Lamb in there because I'm trying to bridge the gap there between, you know, ex gang bangers, inmates, convicts and law enforcement. You know, like Sheriff Lamb is one of my good friends nowadays. And I uh, actually call each other on the phone, which is like. And it's funny, every time I see Sheriff Lamb pop up on my car, dude, I'm like, I feel like it's my dad calling me. I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm in trouble. Like, Sheriff Lamb, I'm like, I'm sure the music's down and stuff. Yeah, you know? I, but he's it, the greatest human being. And he's like, he's a, he turned into a friend of mine now, you know? So, and that's super um, cool. I had I, Josh Scott. Yeah, I had Josh Scott cool. on there who did 10 years in prison and is a big country star now. Um, Hannah Keller, obviously, is my girlfriend who has a crazy, crazy story. You know, she lost three different siblings to the drugs and alcohol, a single mother. Um, and then these next two guests that I'm putting out this week is actually Seth Ferranti, who's a friend of mine that he's the one that produced the movie White Boy on Netflix, which is a top 10 movie on Netflix. And he's a genius, man. He did 21 years in the feds. He used to be on uh, FBI's uh, top 10 most wanted fugitives list, was on the run for two years, faked his own death. He has a crazy, crazy case. But he got his he got a master's degree and a bunch of college degrees in prison and started he started writing for Vice when he was still serving his 21 year prison sentence. Had his wife create an LLC and his wife did the whole 21 year prison sentence with him and they're still together to this day. And wow. they have the most amazing relate. Don't bring you and your your lady around them though because you'll when you leave your lady you're like I wish you looked at me like Seth looks at his wife. How come you don't touch me like that? You know, like <laughs> I'm serious. It, it, but it's so cool to see because I know what they've been through together. You know, and that type of stuff can just give you like an unbreakable bond. So I'm doing him next, and then I actually got I got teamed up with this. It's called this uh, Sister Mary House Prep. Have you heard of it? It's called the Partnership for Reentry Program. Uh, no, no. 
so it's in LA. So you can Google Sister Mary. She's like famous. She's been getting these lifers out of prison for 60 years now. Dudes wow. that were doing, some are doing death row sentences, natural life sentences. And they all write her and correspond to her through her nonprofit. And she goes and visits them and then visits them on the parole hearings and fights to get these guys out. And then they go out there and she employs them because they can't get jobs. I mean, these dudes were doing, they did time like 20, 30, 44 years straight. And um, I met one of the youngsters there who's Carlos, who did 17 and a half years straight. And he hasn't even been out six months. And I just took a real liking to him. He was fresh out when I met him. He'd just gotten out. And I went out there and I brought those guys like a whole truckload of clothes and took them all to dinner. And I just feel real close to that type of stuff, you know, and because they give me new gratitude. You know what I mean? Like, you see the clothes they're wearing? I'm like, how can I bitch about what I'm doing now? You know, like it just makes you put your own life into perspective. So it helps me a ton more than I'm even helping them, you know. And um, so I got Carlos. He's actually coming out here on his first trip ever leaving the leaving California in his life. And he's coming in tomorrow and I'm hooking up with him and Seth. So they're both staying with me. And we're going to knock out a couple of podcasts, but I'm going to just Carlos's insight on life will change people's lives the way they look at their own lives forever, you know? So just all positive motivation stuff. I want people to listen to my podcast and think that they can run through a freaking wall. If they want to run through a wall, think they can overcome an addiction. If they're struggling with an addiction, I want people to think that they don't have to have anxiety when they're meeting new people. You just like, you just man up and do shit, you know, and you can overcome anything as long as you just do it, you know? So that's my main goal there. Awesome. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, Carlos isn't going to leave Arizona once he gets here. It's, oh, wait till you see. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm going to record him, pull up to my house and get this whole shit on film. <laughs> Hell yeah. That, that's awesome stuff, man. And it's just, I, I really enjoy the podcast. Um, yeah, the one with your lady, you. man. That one gave me goosebumps. I swear I was fighting back the tears, uh, but I do. You didn't I, cry for real? I, I, I was close. There was a couple where... I was like, holy God. You're the first person, I'm no joke, to get through without crying. Like, I've had bad, you know, Tommy Vex, you follow him? Uh, yeah, 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 I do. Mm -hmm. Dude, he messaged me afterwards. He's like, bro, I don't ever cry. And that made me cry. He's, you know, like, God. I've had the baddest dudes ever cry. So you're, no joke, the first person that's ever not cried. So, and I tell people when I'm showing them that, I'm like, listen to episode one or episode six, and I promise you, you'll cry. Yeah, I mean, that's don't get me wrong. Point. I was definitely impacted, and I was sitting there just, like, stunned. But it's a amazing story again and it just goes to show people go through their shit and it's important to kind of get through and it's it's just it's awesome that you guys just kind of it shows here and it shows my biggest message like and i and i mean this with all my heart like she, her as well as everybody else doesn't know how in the hell a world a dude like me can do 12 years in prison and then make then do what i'm doing now you know i can't fathom how you could lose three siblings and not kill yourself like seriously you know what i mean like Dude, me and my brother, I'll tell you right now, me and my brother aren't even, we're alpha males. He's on the wrong path. Or not. I just don't agree with stuff he's doing. And um, he doesn't do drugs or anything though. So I don't, I don't, I'm not going to try and say anything bad about him like that, but we haven't spoken in three or four months and uh, not even on birthday, my birthday, Christmas or anything. And we're still as tight as it gets, you know what I mean? And I could not imagine losing a sibling, let alone three and like, how do you don't just give up on life, you know? So mm -hmm. it just shows you that people don't think they can come up, that they can overcome stuff until they just do, you know what I'm saying? And she just put one foot in front of the other, just like I did. And we overcame shit. And she overcame her stuff. And that's what goes for anybody. Anybody that's going through some shit or struggling, you can get through it. You just got to do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there's people that you can lean on now, like the social media is out there. You got friends like there. And here's another great thing that I've noticed too, is when you're on a positive mission and doing good stuff, you're going to get random people that are genuinely willing to help you. You know what I mean? Like abundance. Seriously. I, I have to ask questions for everything every day. So when I call my friends, I was like, yo, I'm sorry to ask you this other question, but they have no problem. You know, if, and if you got to have friends like that, you know, you got to have friends that gas you up. You got to have good people in your circle that know things and everybody has their own role in this life. So that, that's another thing I say, you got to figure out whatever your role or your purpose is and just master that. You don't have to do everything or know everything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know shit. Like, seriously, I, I'm a, I, I always say that I'm not even close to the smartest dude in the room. I just, I, I am definitely the biggest hustler and I have a knack to figure shit out, you know, and I'm, and I finally realized that. And instead I used to feel left out or missed out that I wasn't, cause my brother's a genius, you know, like he can, I mean, it's crazy how much smarter he is than me, you know, and I used to be mad that I wasn't smart like that, you know, and instead I finally, I'm just so grateful that I got the hustle that I got, you know, cause he doesn't have the hustle that I got, you know, and uh, most people don't. So if you could, Find out whatever your your keys or your intuitions are, or something, and just maximize those. Especially in America, 
right? Absolutely. Because America, you can do anything you want. I don't care what the liberals say. Exactly. And so perfect, perfect segue. Um, with politics, uh, I'm assuming when you were out um, stealing the, the, uh, the, the devices and whatever, the Mercedes, stealing whatever you needed for your meth, you weren't thinking of politics. Um, and then the only politics you thought about was in prison. When did you start really seeing that coming into your life, considering we met at Turning Point, the conservative convention in Phoenix? To be honest, and that's what's crazy, is even when Trump became president, I didn't even get that. I didn't care. I didn't. I don't have time for that politics shit. I didn't get into politics until right before Trump got out of office, honestly. The same time. Because I had heard so much shit about the left side and... And I just saw so much stuff. And if anybody just looks with their own two eyes, I don't know anything about politics. And I can see as plain as day what's going on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you just take a time to look and not like watch news and actually like do your own research and like look at what's going on and uh, see their lies, it's it's almost comical that people can't see this. You know? And I, I'm at the point now where I feel bad for them. Like I see these people wearing these double masks. I'm just like, dude, you're never, ever going to get it. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. So I didn't, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not even a politic fan. And the only time I got into it was right before Trump was getting out of office. And I feel like I, I'm in it now because I feel like it's our job to at this point, you know, it's, stuff's gotten so bad. It, I feel like we have a duty to our country to, if anything else, at least just be aware and spread positive messages because um, everything else gets censored. So I, I just feel like it's our, you know, we have a, just like I, I share this in meetings now, you know, cause I don't think about drinking or using, um, my obsession is completely gone. You know, God removed it, whatever removed it. I don't, it doesn't cross my mind no matter what I go through. Um, but you still got to do it. You know what I mean? And, uh, I haven't, so I haven't, that's why when I go to meetings, I go to just share hope, you know, when I, when I share my story there, I help people, you know, I go, I go to a meeting every day, not because I'm thinking about drinking, using, but I go to show people and show the guy that's just struggling, like what he can do when he changes his life, you know? And I feel like, I share there that I have a duty to pass on my message because I've been given this life that I don't deserve. And I feel like we all have that same duty to do this for our country. Yeah. You know? and, and that mentality too. Like I, I, I became, cause I didn't know shit. Literally we're on the same wavelength when it comes to the politics crap. I literally gave zero fucks about Trump in office. Nothing yeah. to do with my life. I was like, I have to make money eat. I used to think I like Bill Clinton. That, I, I had no idea. I didn't idea. know what side he was. I didn't even know what that meant. I just thought I liked Bill Clinton. I, I didn't know what Hillary Clinton was about. I just, I heard she was crooked and I was like, I don't, I have a bad vibe about her, but I was just like, whatever. Yeah. Everyone says it's a clown show that they're running against each other, but I didn't care. And so on that point of yours, you're out there pushing values and it's a mind state. And I don't care what anyone says at this point. Like I'm just over it. Like, if you put your mind to it, you can get it done. But the problem is you're not going to probably do as much if you're out in uh, Zimbabwe or, you know, in some dirt poor country. In those countries, they can have whatever mind state. They will not get or achieve anything near than what we can do here. And that's like the big picture. So when you say everyone has a duty, you're absolutely right. And so I do want to get into politics when I feel like I'm way more seasoned. We're on the same wavelength there. I, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I'm not afraid to be in the room as the dumbest person, which is a, a gift that I think we both got as well. But for yeah. the most part, I do believe like I'm a precinct committeeman now. I'm like, what the hell am I doing in this meeting? Like never in my life did I think I would ever be here. But when I listen and like you said, I open my eyes and I'm like, okay, things are very, very weird. And I blatantly see lies and I blatantly see censorship, even on my fucking podcast, dude, I have like 14 subscribers on YouTube and like just over 800 listens, I think total with all my platforms and I'm getting censored. That's bad. No bueno. Crazy. No bueno. Yeah. I don't know. Long story short, you know, I just, I'm just going to wrap it up here. I think this was Awesome. I can't thank you enough. Um, but yeah, is there any, uh, I want you to just do your last plugs. Um, just short and brief the podcast again, revisit the sober life app. I think that is a phenomenal thing you got going on. Um, would love to hear more about that even off the show. Just send me whatever you got, um, merchandise, what have you, and then, uh, whatever else you want to say to end it. 
Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So the podcast is again is Roll Call with Chapin. It's on all platforms, YouTube, Spotify, Apple. Um, I also have my website, which is petermeyerhoff.com. Um, P-E-T-E-R, and then my last name is M-E-Y-E-R-H-O-F-F. I also have a sober clothing company, which is all on my site too. And it's, um, if you look, we lost the E, so it's S-O-B-R Life. Um, that's another thing I, I trademark too. So I have my own sober clothing brand there as well too. And then my app is going to be tailored off the clothing brand. It's same way, S-O-B-R, Sober Life with Chappie. And I got, it's going to the prisons. It's going to have, I'm going to have like jobs for them with these big providers that are willing to hire felons. Um, I have, I'm going to have housing for them. Like it's going to be, it's stated out stuff that's never been done. And the greatest thing about that is because any program that they have in prison, you only get it while you're in prison. Now mine's going to come with it. We're going to give them a year of service and they get out. So we're going to mentor them and monitor them the whole time when they get out. I'm going to give them workout plans, all kind of stuff. So we're not only going to just help them get their mind running right while they're in there, but we're going to keep them up to date with them and keep track of them when they get out there. They're going to have a whole little sober community out there to, to make something of themselves. And what works even better is I go to the prisons now and instead of it being some dude that got a degree or something talking to these guys, it's me, the shot caller. Yo, I used to run the fucking yard. You guys are on. You guys better listen to me. If not, you're going to, you're not going to have anything, you know, it's uh, that's so a, I can way, that's a way, that's, that's a way better Avenue in my opinion. It uh, is. And are you also hitting like the fitness nutrition aspect of it at all? Or is there anything? I'm going to, so that's, I don't know how, how crazy I'm going to get with it. Hannah is a certified personal trainer too. So I'm for, for sure going to have her help me. If not, maybe just a meal, because one thing you don't realize is when you're in prison, you only get push-ups and pull-ups, you know? So they don't even know what machines to use. So I'm going to have at least just some basic stuff on like what machines to do, like back workouts and chest workouts and stuff like that to use at the gym. So but it's going to be like a whole lifestyle thing that they can get, man, if they want to change their lives and they're going to have a streamlined, uh, um, like venue to all my connections. We're going to pass it on to them. And so it's going to be some cool state. That stuff. I'm very, very excited. It's been getting built now for a few months. It should be ready in the next couple of months. Yeah. And I'm open to helping you out too. I've been doing the fitness thing for a very long time and I'm assuming in prison, they aren't serving catering from Dominic's Steakhouse. So <laughs> no, the nutrition thing, what you're, what you're putting in your body, especially then when they're coming out, it's that institutionalized, maybe mentally they're there, but physiologically where they can't really pinpoint, this is something to consider as well. Just my tidbit, but for the most yep. part, love what you're doing, dude. Can't thank you enough. Happy belated birthday again. And dude, thank you. congrats for getting through that shit. You were a prime example of the American dream, man. Like, seriously. Cool, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I'm uh, glad we met, too. Oh, yeah, brother. Uh, a right. little coincidence there, huh? A little coincidence. All right. <laughs> See you, brother. It's all in the Thank plan. Thank you for having me.